Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. On this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Michael Campbell, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminology at University of Denver, about mass incarceration. This episode was originally recorded on April 9th of this year. During our discussion, we'll talk about the issues surrounding mass incarceration, the role of prisons in our society, and how COVID-19 is bringing new light to problems inside the system. If you would like to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Brew Theology and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. Thank you so much for joining us and enjoy this discussion with Dr. Michael Campbell. So welcome back to the Brew Theology podcast. We're also live, but not in the flesh, but looking at each other. So we're kind of live. I don't think there's a bot across the screen. Uh, this is the new new here within the Denver community. Jacksonville's doing it this way. I think New Jersey. Who else is doing it? I think uh, North Carolina groups, all, Florida groups, they're all doing it like this. Because if you're listening to this right now, you will have remembered that dreaded month of March and April. And so if you're listening in the summertime, you're thinking, oh, life's good. But at one point, we were all stuck inside looking at screens. And so this has been recorded on a screen. Uh, Mike Campbell is going to join us tonight. And Dr. Campbell, I've never called Mike Dr. Campbell. So Mike and I are friends. We met about a couple years ago at the farmer's market, realized our girls were in the same class, hit it off. And then after we hung out a few times watching some games and drinking some beer, I realized this guy's actually pretty smart. Uh, He knows a thing or two. And he's got this PhD over at DU, which we love our friends over at DU and Iliff School of Theology. So sure enough, as you all know, he's a criminologist, not to be confused with a criminal, but we may get into that story later. And he's going to be sharing a bit tonight for about 25, 30 minutes. And after that, uh, he is going to take questions. So there's going to be an area where you can go to the chat, put up your questions there, and Michael will get to them the best of his ability. After that, we'll break out into small groups, have a discussion based on the content and the material that he's given us. And if you like this, you know what you can do? You can share it on the line. That's what's great about the internet. Uh, Even though we're not with each other, we can still share this with our friends and our family. And so it's good, uh, not just for the content that uh, Mike is brewing up, but also I think it's it's good for people to brew those things up in community, uh, wherever that may be. So uh, this curriculum lives on if you're listening on a podcast or if you're listening on Facebook. So we will admit people as they come in. And without further ado, Dr. Campbell, you have the mic. Well, I'd like to thank you all for giving me the chance to to come and speak to you. Um, Obviously, the circumstances aren't something that um, all of us had hoped. Obviously, I was looking forward to uh, hanging out in a pub or a bar here in in town and meeting all of you in person or meeting you again in person and hanging out. But um, uh, in some ways, I think that what's going on right now makes this discussion more relevant than it might have otherwise been. Um, I had hoped to frame the discussion a little bit more around some theological issues that seem to come up after Ryan and I have had uh, more than one drink. And, um, but I, I wasn't able to do as much of that, but I think in a hope that many of these things will be pretty clear and kind of obvious uh, why they're, they should be of great importance to people in the theological community who think about these issues. Um, and so I'm going to first start off with um, some of the bad news. Uh, and I decided to keep the bad news uh, shorter, given everything that's going on. And then do my best to cruise to some of the good news. Um, So I'll first talk a little bit about what is mass incarceration, which is really the topic at hand here. Um, I'll give us a little bit of history about what, um, why we are in the mess that we're currently in. Um, And then I'll try my best to move quickly to uh, some of the things that are very hopeful and some of the things that are currently going on um, that that I think are relevant and things that uh, if you're feeling a little helpless right now, these are things that I think people can get engaged with that, that might provide uh, a more positive way to end this discussion than sometimes is the case. Um, but I started studying mass incarceration um, back, I guess, in 2003. And to give you an idea of what I mean when I say mass incarceration, um, I got a few figures that I'll toss out to kind of put it in perspective. Uh, But from the early 1970s to about 2000, the U.S. incarceration rate grew by 500%. 
So when I talk about incarceration rate, uh, the rates are used to control for populations, for people who don't do social science stats. Um, so what that means then is that the overall population has grown immensely because we use rates to consider how many people are in prison relative to the relative size of the population. So we've had a 500% increase in about 40 years. And today in the United States, we have over 2.2 million people in prisons and jails, uh, and including, including 1.7 million in prisons. Um, so the difference between prisons and jails, and I'll be talking more about some of the issues with prisons, but these things are all relevant to jails in different ways. But prisons are state-run institutions where people are incarcerated for over a year or more. Jails are local facilities that are managed by your local government that detain people who are uh, held prior to trial um, and people who are being incarcerated for less than a year or punished for less than a year. I'll be talking largely about people who are more the long-term prisoners, people who have been sentenced to longer stretches. Um, and part of why this issue is so important is that in many ways, uh, the United States, as in many other ways in its history, is such an outlier compared to the rest of the world. Um, some of you may have heard some of the statistics that we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, but to put some of that in perspective, uh, two of the countries we're most often compared to are Canada and the United Kingdom, uh, countries we share legal histories with, a lot of culture with, a lot of similarities with. And to put it in perspective, in those two countries, around 140 out of 100,000 people are incarcerated. And in the United States, we have 700 people incarcerated per 100,000. So when we talk about the number of people and the proportion of people that we incarcerate compared to countries that we're similar to, uh, the United States is an outlier beyond all reason. The only two countries even in the ballpark are Rwanda and Russia. Uh, if you want to think about who we compare ourselves to as a country, those are the only two countries that we really are, are close to. Um, every year, states spend $60 billion on their correctional systems. Uh, and many states in the United States now spend more on their correctional systems than they spend on higher education. And it's important to note that, as I'll talk about in a moment, um, a lot of, a lot of the, the explanations and the way that we think about and understand incarceration are rooted in the nation's very checkered racial history. Um, but though mass incarceration might have been born out of some racial oppression and racial disparities, those things have changed dramatically over the course of the last 25 years as mass incarceration has become entrenched across the U.S. So, for example, today, uh, the United States incarcerates women at far higher rates than other countries uh, incarcerate women. Generally, women are less likely to commit violent crimes, far less likely to be recidivist offenders or repeat offenders. Um, and our nation incarcerates a lot of women even when they're pregnant, young mothers that they separate from their children, uh, and we know that many of these things have a lot of negative long-term consequences for families. Um, and the other thing that's changed uh, with the era of mass incarceration is that um, while at first many people viewed this as kind of a racialized tool of oppression imprisonment, um, the fact of the matter is that it's spread and it's permeated through much of the nation's social fabric. Um, today, white people are, are also far much more likely over the course of a life course to be incarcerated um, and so are people who commit lower-level crimes. Um, rural areas are increasingly likely to commit people to prison for very long periods of time for what many people would view as addiction issues. Um, so mass incarceration overall has come to be viewed by people, um, criminologists and sociologists, as an institution that has really become a dominant institution in the way that Americans think about a variety of social issues whether it be the workplace in terms of criminalizing uh, certain types of behavior in the workplace, whether we talk about how we respond to poverty and homelessness, uh, or if we're talking about the way that our nation responds to and deals with people that have mental illness and people who deal with addiction. Many or all of these issues in many other countries of the world are dealt with as public health issues or social justice issues. But in this country, we often lean on criminal justice systems to deal with this. And what that means is essentially the nation's prisons are the largest mental health facilities in the country. Um, and if you ask anyone who knows anything about mental health, they're also probably the worst possible place that you could treat someone who has issues with mental health. So mass incarceration is a very important topic and I would consider it among the most important social topics of our time. Um, I, 
again, want to try to stay positive, but a few things from the history of prisons that I think are important to give you some context as you think about kind of where we are and maybe where we prefer to go versus where we are today are that throughout history, American prisons, regardless of social change, have consistently uh, served the same type of clientele. And that clientele has just historically been the nation's poorest people that are least educated and people from marginalized groups, especially racially and ethnically marginalized groups. If you look at the history of prisons, sadly, the people who are in those, in those institutions are not that much unlike the people who are in them today as much as they were 200 years ago. So this has been very consistent. Um, and it reflects the ongoing racial tensions and the issues of social justice in terms of income and class and equality uh, that permeate a lot of American politics and a lot of other policies. And secondly, I think it's important to note that, um, you know, America is, in, is often described as the birthplace of the prison. Um, so uh, some of the first penitentiaries in the world, of course, there have always been cages where they put people that they held. But in general, those places were essentially places that people were held in the short term until they decided what they were going to do with them, whether that be cut off their head or whether that be let them go and give them a fine. But the United States was really the first place where prisons became viewed as a, a place that would rehabilitate people. And prisons were built out of this kind of social justice notion that the state and the government can and should do something um, to help people and correct them and move them in the right direction. Uh, the sad reality is that throughout the history of the prison, uh, they have never, ever approached that goal on any major scale. Um, the reality of incarceration is that prisons are almost always um, overburdened, overpacked, uh, understaffed, underfunded, and are almost always focused more on detention than they are on any sort of treatment or rehabilitation um, that, that might have been the original goal uh, of, their, uh, of this institution's premise. And the other important thing to note here um, is that prisons have never uh, really been successful at attaining their ostensible goal, which is increasing public safety. Um, one could argue, of course, that while prisons are unfortunate institutions, uh, we have to have them because they do keep us and make us safer as a society. Um, you know, that there's a lot of ways that that argument makes a lot of sense in some ways. And uh, the reality of it is, is that we've been doing it for long enough and in, in enough places to know that this institution fails on, on that level in a, in a major way, at least in the way that we do it here in this country. And so ultimately, we have an institution here that is a little bit uncommon. Um, we create military institutions to fight and win wars. We create educational institutions to educate people, to teach them how to read, to do math. Um, we uh, create medical institutions to treat people who are ill or injured um, or to prevent people from becoming ill or injured. Um, if we, let me put it this way, um, if our prisons were uh, done, if, if, our, if our hospitals operated the same way that our prisons do, no one would ever consider going to the doctor. Um, the reality of it is, uh, prisons fail to attain their goals. People who go to prison become more likely to commit crimes when they leave than people who didn't go to prison. Um, people who are released from prison are highly likely to be rearrested. People who come out of prisons are anything but corrected. And so it's important to note that these institutions have uh, sustained themselves for a very long time, even though they fail to attain the goals that are often used uh, to justify their existence. Um, other institutions would have a harder time um, doing this. Uh, and very briefly, I'll note um, that, and I mentioned this in, in um, some of the material that I distributed, one of the reasons that this is the case, and one of the reasons that this issue and this topic are so hard to discuss, is because the federal structure of American governance makes this a very tough thing to, to peg down. As I mentioned at the very beginning, I largely study state-level processes that affect state prison populations. Um, jails operate at local levels and are affected by a lot of different dynamics, um, as are police departments. And the federal government operates at a completely different level, where uh, federal officials and federal policies can incentivize states to do certain things, but they can't force states to do certain things. So at the end of the day, the United States federal structure kind of creates a bit of a wild west when it comes to understanding what it is that we should be doing or that we are doing 
in terms of approaching responding to crime through punishment and through imprisonment. Um, along those lines, uh, there's a long history uh, then of uh, considerable variation across the U.S. So states, essentially all 50 states, have the ability to create, and they're constitutionally empowered, to create their own criminal codes. Um, they also have the power to manage their own state prison systems. Um, and then state governments have very little power to regulate what's going on in local jails, whether it be some jail in Grand Junction or one that's in a rural area of the Plains here in Colorado, or whether it be something in Durango or Denver or Boulder. A lot of times the way that those jails operate is, is extremely, extremely varied uh, and is under the control often of the local sheriff. Um, who may or may not have any experience in managing correctional facilities. And so one of the tough things that we deal with as scholars who study what this is all about is the fact that there is just such fragmentation and variation across the board that it really can be a challenge to make sense as to what sort of systematically um, is going on. That said, there are some things that we can say. Um, and my work and uh, work of a, a whole kind of wave of scholars that I'm just a part of has really dug into what's happened at the state level, whereas a lot of the early accounts of, of kind of America's imprisonment binge focused on the national level. My work is focused more on what has happened at the state level. So I've done in-depth research on Texas, on California. Now I'm working on several other, six other states. Um, and part of what we found is that the state level, we're able to dig into the things that have shaped state prison populations. And that's where 85% of all the people in the United States are incarcerated. It's within state prisons, not federal penitentiaries and not local jails. And so part of what we found is that politics has long dictated outcomes when it comes to laws and policies um, that create correctional policies and, and the number of people who are in prison. It's very rarely that we see a policy that is directly rooted in, for example, research or some sort of social science or some sort of policy analysis that shows actually this is very ineffective and we should do this instead. Um, most often, prisons and, in, and punishment policies are much more rooted in uh, the highly politicized nature of crime, which is also then very directly rooted to race in this country's history. And it, and it has been for a very long time. And so politics, more than research or more than um, some sort of or kind of a goal-driven policy stance is really what's uh, dictated a lot of what we know um, about incarceration. And this would be especially true if we were to think, for example, about the wars on crime and drugs. Um, the wars on crime and drugs were highly racialized. Um, and these, these wars on crime were waged during times when we had some of the largest white-collar crime scandals in this nation's history. Uh, the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, uh, the amount of damage that that did to the American economy, the amount of theft that was essentially involved is essentially immeasurable. Um, scholars can't even really put a dollar amount on it because uh, the amount that cost each of us is, is hard to even measure. Um, and if we think of like the Enron and the wave of scandals at the end of the 1990s, uh, there were white-collar crimes being committed that were being waged in the billions of dollars, uh, many people, who, many of whom never faced any legal consequences or criminal consequences for their actions. And at the same time, we were locking first-time drug offenders away in some states for three to five years for having a single joint in their pocket, like they were doing in New Jersey in 1999. And so when we think about these policies then, we've built up essentially this, uh, a, a, we have this long history, a very checkered history as to what the prison is, about how punishment operates in this country, who it affects, and why. And so this story then that leads us up and this background that leads us to mass incarceration can seem very frustrating. Um, but fortunately, things uh, have started to change, and they've changed for a variety of reasons. Um, so the, nation's the overall national incarceration rate peaked in 2007 and then began to come down. And um, this national change in the trends reflected important changes that were going on at the state level. So a lot of my research now looks at some of these changes that were going on at the state level. And what we find is that if you look at a state like New Jersey, for example, New Jersey's incarceration rate peaked around 2001 and 2002. And around that time, the state started to revisit some of the issues of parole, where people were being 
uh, parole was being revoked for simple technical violations of missing a meeting, and many of the people on parole can't even get transportation to go from one meeting to the other. Um, New Jersey stopped revoking parole for technical violations. Uh, and, of course, people that commit new crimes are sent back to prison. But for the most part, the state's incarceration rate really started to decline when they started passing some of these um, laws. But at the same time, there were other states like neighboring Pennsylvania, whose incarceration rate between 2000 and 2013 continued to climb and went up by 25 percent over the same time period. So part of what my work has been has been looking on and trying to understand how do we have such stark differences between neighboring states? Um, you know, there's always been regional trends in punishment in the United States. Southern states have always incarcerated people more. They've always executed more people. Um, northeastern states have always been less likely to use prison. The Midwest falls somewhere in the middle, and the West is, the West is weird. Um, so when we try to figure these things out, we can use and leverage this variation across the states. Why did New Jersey go one way when Pennsylvania went the other? What are the factors that drove these differing trajectories between one state and the other? And so the variation between states is very useful. It helps us kind of think about, given that both of those states are in the United States and deal with the same federal government and very similar cultures since they're neighbors, how do we understand why one went one way and the other went the other. So I'm studying New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm studying uh, Michigan and Illinois and Florida and Georgia. So we paired states, and I'm working with a woman named Heather Schoenfeld at uh, Boston University on a huge project. And we put pairs of states where one state went one way and the other state went the other. They're neighbors, which you'd think they would have more in common than, than not, and trying to figure out why the different paths. Um, and so some of the things then that we've looked at is what, what are some of the things that have made reform possible? What are some of the bright spots that have gone on? Uh, and one of the bright spots is actually just the fact that um, incarcerating so many people is terribly and unsustainably expensive. Uh, the costs simply just keep going up. It gets more and more expensive. Um, inmates are extremely unhealthy and caring for them is extremely difficult. As I'll come back to, if you can imagine what's going on right now, where many are just being left to die. Um, and so part of what's happened then is that these unsustainable costs, especially in the wake of the Great Recession, have led a lot of states to rethink what's going on because they simply can't afford to pay as much as they've paid for their prison systems. They've started to think about where can we invest our money? Can we, uh, can we prevent crime through education, through prevention programs? Uh, can we help people when they get out of prison not go back to prison? So those are some of the things that uh, the, 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 the cost savings have had some positive effects, and they've also had some negative effects, and that some of this has just meant that states have cut costs um, and limited their prison populations, but what that has just meant is more stark conditions inside for those inmates, fewer programs, worse conditions, more overcrowding, um, those sorts of things that have happened. So in many ways, the Great Recession facilitated this kind of rethinking of whether this is worth the money or not. Uh, in some ways, that's been a positive. In some ways, it's, it's, it's pretty questionable whether that's led to any, any good, good changes. The other positive thing here that's led to this kind of energy for reform is that between 1995 and 2005, crime rates in the United States, especially serious violent crime rates, um, dropped, dropped in a historically high level. So uh, crime peaked in most states in the U.S. between 1991 and 1993. Uh, but from 1995 to 2005, crime dropped by about 50% for homicide, rape, aggravated assault, anything that we think is serious. Uh, the, the, most of the things that we think of as most serious. And so this essentially took some of the, you know, kind of, kind of took some of the political intensity out of of incarceration that the, that that had really built up during the eighties and nine or during the seventies and eighties when crime rates had been extremely high, so this is a positive thing that that gave some energy to reform. And the other thing is that uh, by the, by around two thousand to two thousand five, we had been doing this long enough and we had studied this long enough to see pretty clearly that it didn't work very well. Uh, the fact that we have 50 different states that do 50 different things, I won't bore you with the statistical models, uh, but what we can do is we can put in a lot of different factors and we can control for things like violent crime and we can measure how much did putting people in prison reduce crime 
uh, by comparing all the 50 states over the course of 50 different years um, and controlling for various factors like poverty, uh, unemployment. Um, and in the end, uh, whatever effect incarceration might have had really started to wane once we started putting so many people in prison. Um, you get some effect when you put people in that are very serious, psychologically impaired, violent offenders, uh, people who should be in prison. Uh, when you put those people in prison, you do increase public safety to some degree. But when you start catching smaller fish, uh, it's much less effective. And so um, we know that and we had enough time uh, to kind of get a better grip on what was going on. And then the other thing is, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, there were new groups and actors that got involved in uh, advocating for criminal justice reforms uh, on a lot of different levels. So the Soros Foundation has funded a lot of different, um, through the Open Society Foundation, has funded a lot of different efforts to reform criminal justice at both the state and local level. Um, you have the uh, emergence of Black Lives Matter and groups like that that have been very vocal in criticizing police and incarceration. Uh, groups like Families Against Mandatory Minimums, uh, the Drug Policy Alliance that have argued for lower penalties for people who commit first-time drug offenses. So you had more interest groups that got involved. Um, and ultimately, uh, being tough on crime essentially lost some of its political efficacy, and partly because both Democrats and Republicans in the 90s had both just joined into the fray and essentially tried to outdo each other as to who could be more creative in the way they punished people. Um, and that started to fall apart a little bit in the 2000s because it just didn't get you any new voters. Uh, that, kind of, that kind of trajectory had lost a lot of its, its power. So moving on then to some of the good things that have happened that I wanted to spend most of my time on or more of my time on is that there were states that made some very important changes to the way they dealt with crime and they've, they've had a pretty big impact. Um, uh, states in the Northeast have essentially led the way in terms of rethinking the American approach to criminal justice. Um, and it's, it's started to, to, uh, to have a pretty important um, impact on local developments. Um, and part of these reforms, uh, when we talk about New Jersey, is that um, this was a very high-profile event, but New Jersey passed a law essentially eliminating um, cash bail for offenders that simply couldn't afford to pay. The U.S. Constitution essentially protects you from being, hailed, from being held in custody simply because you're poor and you can't afford to pay. The reality of it is that's been happening all across this country for 40 or 50 or many years longer. And New Jersey essentially had studies showing very clearly that uh, inmates were serving in jails, were serving 170 days on average for less than $5,000 bail bonds. So these are people, mind you, who have never been convicted of a crime. These are people that are being held pretrial detention who have, are not guilty of anything, uh, and they were being held on average for 170 days because they couldn't come up and to, to bail on 5,000. You don't even have to come up with 5,000. You come up with 500. Um, they couldn't come up with even that. So these are people who committed very low-level offenses. And so what they found is that these people were serving a lot of time uh, for very low-level offenses simply because they were too poor to get out. And then the study also showed that half of all of those people were never convicted of anything and yet they served 170 days in jail in the United States. Um, so New Jersey, after that study, and uh, with the help of Chris Christie, whose political career very quickly took a turn uh, to, the, to the South, um, they engaged in a, in a much more intense effort to change these policies, and they passed a law that essentially eliminates cash bail in New Jersey and allows um, in, uh, prevents prosecutors and judges from detaining people who haven't been convicted unless they can, can, can demonstrate that this person is some sort of a threat. So this helps poor people uh, stay out of jail for, for very low-level offenses. So this is one of the most important reforms that's happened. Um, it's, it's, been in, it's been very important. Um, the other one is that many cities have elected uh, prosecutors that have uh, campaigned with a very different attitude than it happened in the past. So when you look at cities like Philadelphia, New York City, uh, Boston, my, um, not Miami, Tampa, St. Louis, um, the, the Soros Foundation um, essentially donated large sums of money to these local prosecutorial elections. 
and got people elected who ran on the premise that they would prosecute police officers that uh, used unnecessary force and who, who used force illegally, um, and that they would not prosecute poor urban dwellers for low-level drug crimes and send them to state prisons. Uh, this, this has set off a major change, really, where uh, for the first time, urban prosecutors have kind of become more of a, a kind of a progressive branch in some cities of the way that people are approaching um, punishing offenders and dealing with crime. Um, so this has mattered a lot, and it's, it's really shined a bright light on the role of the prosecutor, uh, which is really important because prosecutors are locally, they're, they're local officials, they're political officials, and prosecutors wield enormous amounts of power in deciding who does and does not get charged with a crime. Um, very um, uh, many cases, uh, prosecutors have essentially unfettered discretion to, to decide whether you get charged and, and what you get charged with and what kind of a plea bargain that you ultimately are going to be offered because 95% of all cases are decided uh, by plea bargains. And if you remember the Trayvon Martin case, many people were irate that uh, the man who killed Trayvon Martin um, was never charged for anything and went home and had dinner in his uh, in his um, uh, his own home that night, uh, wasn't even detained for having killed an unarmed person that he accosted on the street. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that's because the prosecutor has the discretion to choose whether or not he's going to file charges against somebody when the police report something that happened. Uh, ultimately, the prosecutor was right. The charges didn't hold up in court. And I can't remember his name right now, but Trayvon uh, Martin's killer uh, ultimately uh, was never convicted, though he went on, George Zimmerman, yeah, who went on to get, in, uh, get himself into more trouble. So ultimately, prosecutorial reforms have made a difference. Um, the other uh, New Jersey's bail and speedy trial reforms have made a big difference. Um, and many states are essentially trying to help released inmates get more structured help. In the past, religious organizations have been there to help these uh, individuals who are released. Uh, there's been a few very measly state programs, uh, but the reality of it is that the number of the sheer number and volume of people being released from prison is such uh, that they those organizations can't informally manage these uh, the numbers of people that have been released. Um, California was dragged, kicking and screaming, uh, trying to resist into being a reform state by the federal courts. Uh, and the reason was is that an inmate was dying about every four days in the California prisons of a preventable health problem, and the state was failing to act to stop this from happening. People were not getting medication, people were not getting basic treatments, and people were literally just dying through neglect uh, while being detained in the state's prisons. And the federal courts simply forced them to release 40,000 inmates uh, within one year. So they did reform, but ironically, liberal California only did it once they were dragged there by a federal court. Um, and I think that ultimately then that's kind of a reminder uh, of something that, that I look closely at is why is it if we can look at something like incarceration, we can see its moral failures, we can see its policy failures and its extreme costs, we can do pretty clear studies that show that it doesn't increase public safety. And yet we find it so frustratingly difficult uh, to really shift things and do something that we think could work better, that would cost more and that's more humane. Um, and the reality with that is that there's still a lot of opposition from particularly law enforcement groups uh, who from my research, prosecutors associations are by far the most, uh, the, the most uh, staunch opponents of reform in Michigan. Uh, they refuse to consider any reforms, no matter how minor, uh, until the state budget collapse forced them to come to the table uh, because lawmakers simply couldn't afford to pay for these programs. Uh, my friend Josh Page wrote a book called The Toughest Beat about the California Prison Guard Union. Uh, they're among the most important and powerful uh, prison guard unions. They were, uh, as his book shows, they were among the most powerful lobbyists in the entire state. They created the state's victims, uh, victims organization of, of people who are victims of serious crimes uh, to provide them with some, uh, instead of making them look like a union simply trying to defend their own self-interest, they created a group that gave them uh, more authority because they could bring people up to a podium who could talk about the tragic rape and murder of, of a family member, which is obviously incredibly compelling and impossible to ignore and so emotively powerful in politics. Uh, and that those things were very effective. Uh, and that's one of the main issues with this entire 
one of the key things that you have to consider with this entire issue of incarceration is that many of the people who are incarcerated, not, not all, but many have done very terrible things. Uh, and the question becomes, as a nation and as a state, you know, what, what, is, what is the appropriate response to dealing with people who have done horrible things? Um, there aren't simple and easy answers to these questions. Prosecutors have to stare at family members whose loved ones have been murdered, uh, who have been raped, and they have to figure out and ask themselves, what is the appropriate response here? Uh, the reality of it is, for many of these things, the families will never get uh, real justice. These things can't be resolved by the criminal justice system um, because they're, some of them are so heinous. Uh, there's, there's really no way to, to identify what might actually uh, bring justice to a family who's, who's lost a, a loved one to tragedy. So ultimately, then, these things are hypercharged politically. They're very emotional. Um, but there are also things that have to be, because of those reasons, there are things that have to be thought about carefully. Because every time you send someone to prison, uh, you know, in, in, in the scholarly field, we call it a life-trashing sentence. If you send somebody away for seven or more years, uh, the average prisoner doesn't get a visitor after three years. Uh, you release that person after seven years, and odds are um, their life is going to go very, very poorly from that point on. Uh, their odds of being addicted, of being homeless, their, uh, their likelihood of, uh, are high. Their likelihood of getting empl- meaningful employment are very low. Um, so at the end, when we think about our response as a society, it's easy to get mad, and it's easy to want to exact that pound of flesh. Um, but the question becomes, you know, to what end? Um, and what does that say about us as a society? Um, and, you know, in the long run, where, where will that leave us and where has it left us? And part of where it's left us um, is that, you know, if you think about what's going on today, there was a very, uh, there, there was a very, a very important um, article in the Washington Post about how essentially prisoners and guards, uh, guards as well, guards are being forced to report to work at federal prisons after doctors have ordered them to go into a 14-day quarantine. What this means then is that a guard is going cell to cell with, with people in a cage, kind of like if you think about the aircraft carrier, imagine a prison where all the standards of healthcare are even lower, where people are forced, three people in a 15 by seven foot cage to be next to each other, think about the rampant spread of disease. And these are people that are under the care of the state, right? These aren't people that have the option to self-isolate. These aren't people that have any other option. They're being held um, as citizens of the United States by us in those conditions. Um, People have ignored this for so long. And I think that now with COVID-19, um, this is kind of a moment of reckoning. Uh, one thing that's happening is they are releasing some, uh, some inmates uh, that are in the worst health, that are, in, that are the oldest, that are in the worst shape. And they're essentially kicking these people out the door with no resources into this current pandemic and saying, yeah, it's too dangerous and if you're here for you, go out. You've been in prison for 19 years, good luck. Where are those people supposed to go? What are those people supposed to do? Well, for one, they may be positive. They're not going to get a test. They're only testing people who qualify for hospitalization in federal prisons right now. If that's what's happening in federal prisons, state prisons are usually far less professional, far more dangerous, and far dirtier. If you read the newspaper and look right now, the place that is the epicenter of the largest outbreak for COVID in the United States is the Chicago jail. And this is no accident. We've neglected conditions in these facilities. Uh, we've looked at the, we've, we've for a long kind of pushed these people into the margins, ignored the conditions within which they live. Uh, and now this virus is making a lot of us rethink some things, but it's certainly making, uh, uh, kind of illuminating the depth of neglect and marginalization that's been imposed on those populations. And because we have so many people in those conditions, um, this is something that's going to essentially impose a reckoning uh, across, I would hope, across uh, much of the United States. Um, and I, I want to conclude here with some of my remarks uh, and, and let you all talk more. I've talked too much already today. My voice is going to get out of me soon. But um, Colorado has really uh, been a state that had a lot of inertia and didn't change despite lots of evidence that it should and could and that there were good reasons to do so. But the good news is, is that over the last legislative session and the one that got interrupted by COVID, this state has really started to think and talk more about making major reforms. 
Uh, one major reform that was passed last year is that this was one of the only states in the country where any drug offense in the state of Colorado was considered a felony. So if you have a joint, well, I mean, now that doesn't count here, but if you were underage and had a joint, um, or if you had a low-level amount of methamphetamine, cocaine, illegal prescription drugs, this was considered a felony offense, any, any of these. So people convicted of felonies, of course, are stripped of many other rights uh, across the board uh, once they come out of prison. And Colorado finally revised that law and made low-level drug crimes misdemeanors, which is a very positive thing. They also revised their parole consideration to eliminate some of the technical violators who are being sent back, which is something we've seen in other states that's had a positive effect. Um, and people have also started to take on the private prisons, which are among those that have the highest levels of, of violence, even though they have higher, lower levels of offenders. Uh, private prisons essentially get to get the cream of the crop in terms of prisoners, people who didn't commit violent offenses, people that don't have serious health care needs, um, and they would take them and put them in private prisons with the lowest paid uh, guards, the least trained guards, the highest turnover in employees. And then they would incarcerate the best prisoners in the worst conditions uh, in situations that would often lead to more violence than you would expect from those offenders uh, and into more uh, instances of abuse in terms of sexual abuse and predation by guards um, and to violence between inmates. So uh, Colorado, to end on a positive note, uh, has several bills that are still in the works in the state where people are really starting to talk about and rethink whether this is the best approach or whether this is a good idea. Um, and I think that in the long run, you know, that, uh, that momentum seemed to be gaining some steam. Obviously many, many things have been interrupted by uh, the current circumstances, uh, but there are reasons for optimism and there's reasons for hope uh, that, that this is an issue that people are going to take more seriously and think more about ways to prevent crime, uh, to deal with people, uh, who are in these situations, then rather cast them out into rural uh, facilities that are understaffed, underfunded, that have decrepit health conditions, uh, where they have to essentially fend for themselves. So um, these are things that are being reconsidered, and uh, this seems like a you know a hopeful time despite everything that's uh, going on across the world right now. So um, I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you. Thank you for your work and content. This is great. Uh, we're going to spend next week as a community talking about this in small groups. We're going to spend the next 45 minutes to an hour in breakout groups. But before that, hydrate, Mike, because you have some questions that you have to answer. Okay. So right. how long do I have to hydrate here? Hey, uh, oh, oh, so I got some I, questions I, down here. I, I could uh, tell some bad dad jokes, but I don't think people want to hear that. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just uh, some questions in the in the Zoom group chat. Got it. And yeah, I had to ignore that while I was uh, talking. No, yeah, yeah, def definitely, yeah. So we'll cover that, and then after that, we'll we'll do a small break. If those want to leave, they got to leave. That's fine. Then we'll come back and do more uh, just discussion within smaller groups. Right. So, uh, what's the plan then? Do I work through each question here, or do folks want to directly ask me the question, or what? Yeah, let's let's get some different voices in there, and yeah. that that way it's good for the recording too. Why not? Great. Oh, okay. I think uh, Terry had the first question. Terry and Fran, I should say, had the first question. Um, Terry and Fran, you wanna you wanna recap the the question that you submitted? Yeah, I just kind of was interested. If um, I'm sure there's some studies out there, but as more and more states or legalizing marijuana. i just kind of wondering what the impact on, 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 on the incarceration at this point in time and essentially then how Colorado is doing in, in reforming the incarceration, which, which you've, you, you essentially talked about. But the impact of, of, of legalizing marijuana, I guess I'm most interested in. Well, that's a great question because uh, some people have tried to frame marijuana legalization around um, the idea that it would re reduce imprisonment and all the studies show that it has had a minimal at best effect on, on incarceration. So in fact, in, in Colorado, in the six years after the legalization of marijuana, the number of drug felony, um, charges that were filed in the state went up like fivefold. So what this meant is that prosecutors were no longer able and law enforcement was no longer able to charge people for low-level marijuana offenses. 
So what this meant was that they were being much more aggressive in terms of charging people for other drug offenses. So whether that be minor possession, whether that be possession of other drugs. So essentially there was a replacement effect where rather than this reducing the number of drug charges, there was a replacement effect with just charging more people with more serious uh, offenses for other drugs. They had to justify their jobs then. <laughs> you said it, not me, but... Uh, yeah, there's, there is a, uh, a degree to which prosecutorial discretion here is really at the center of the story. And there's a really good book by John, uh, by John Bath uh, called Locked Up, which is about, uh, about this issue that prosecutors essentially, you know, that incarceration rates don't fluctuate much with crime because prosecutors can always find new and more people to charge. So why don't we just get rid of prosecutors? <laughs> They're lawyers after all, so... Um, Well, part of what's going on right now is that people are starting to talk seriously about how you can limit prosecutorial power or put checks on it. So if you look at what happens in France, for example, in France, if you're charged with a crime, there's essentially a three-person panel, and all three of these people are both prosecutors and judges. And they're essentially lifelong, non-political state bureaucrats, like a state administrator. And the three of them all make decisions about your case. In the United States, we elect prosecutors. There's a single prosecutor, and that prosecutor goes up for election usually every four years. Uh, The prosecutors that most often win in most places are the ones that promise to really stick it to people. And local prosecutors are among the most powerful local political operators in a lot of you know, rural jurisdictions, for example. So getting rid of them would be a political task that few people would even embark on. Thanks, Mike. Um, Janelle, I think your question was up next uh, after Terry and Fran, if you wanted to, to jump in there. Sure. I did some uh, ministry type work in CCA in Kansas City, Corrections Corp of America, Can you just talk about their role and the role of for-profit prisons and how that impacts inmates? Yeah, so needless to say, um, mass incarceration is such a behemoth that there are lots of pigs feeding at the trough when it comes to who benefits from uh, from, from this institutional arrangement. And whether that be the companies like Sodexo, who provide food and services to the prisons, or whether it be the corporations that actually provide private, uh, you know, the, the private facilities, the only way they can make a profit is by incarcerating people on the, in the starkest, cheapest terms on, on, in many ways. And they do, they do a lot of that. And they've become very powerful lobbying groups. So part of what they've done is, uh, you might remember that Barack Obama, I think, in um, 2014, um, essentially said the federal government was on was going to end uh, new contracts with private prison industries. Um, CCA stock declined by 35 percent in one day when he did that. When Donald Trump won the election, CCA stock went up something like a similar amount because he had promised to get private prisons back into the mix, which he's done and that he's used to detain. Uh, inmate, uh, uh, immigrants as well. So part of the, their role is multifaceted in that they do a lot of things behind the scenes with lobbying. Um, and they also just provide essentially one more pillar. When I talk about inertia, that makes it very difficult to get, to get these things out of the way. They have the resources to do things that a group like Families Against Mandatory Minimums can never dream of. Ryan, Ryan, you had the next question and then Phil. Um, related to Texas, if you want to jump in there. Yeah, bittersweet. I love Texas, and yet, uh, for many reasons, I am petrified and embarrassed to go back. So incarceration and death penalty, all that stuff. But you did say that there there has been some reform uh, that, you know, this diverted people from prison in the stats. Can you elaborate on that, please, to give me some hope? <laughs> yeah. So, um, like I said, there's a variety of things that tend to stimulate reform. Um, and when it comes to juvenile corrections in particular, Texas, uh, Texas has made some major changes. Uh, the reason they did that was for a, one of the reasons that reforms happened, and that is they had a huge scandal where guards were raping uh, uh, juvenile inmates. 
uh, or allowing certain inmates to rape other inmates. And so Texas embarked on a very big, large-scale reform effort of its juvenile justice system. Uh, the problem is, is that there's so many there, there's so many different groups coming to the table that have a, 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 an interest in these things that Texas reduced its prison population, its incarceration rate, and, and prison population by about six percent or eight percent over the course of about five years, which is really significant given that the state had so many people in prison, something like yeah. 120,000 at one point, uh, maybe 100, yeah, 120,000. And um, so people were excited, right? So the, state, the, the adult inmate population declined. But what happened was local governments then lobbied the state to take over these local jails that had been closed, or local prisons that had been closed, and convert them to detain juveniles in local government settings rather than in the state juvenile detention facility, which was, had been notoriously violent, corrupt, and abusive. And what's happened now is that rather than have these juveniles detained in a more centralized facility where you can really do a better job of supervising and regulating if you wanted to and if you tried and if you created the staff and gave the funding to supervise these things that you could, this has essentially devolved out into all of these local settings out in very rural areas of Texas. Um, so that's pretty frustrating. The upside is, is that in Texas, several locales have elected more, these more progressive prosecutors that I'm talking about. Um, even in Dallas, you know, a conservative stalwart in Texas or in Houston, uh, Houston elected a prosecutor that also was not no longer willing to uh, be as aggressive against low level offenders and who promised to take on some of the, uh, some of the issues with police brutality. So, um, the, the, the larger urban areas, like really the way that some of this fight is playing out just echoes the broader political dynamics in the country that in these big urban areas and in the suburbs, you're starting to see kind of this union more of urban populations with suburban populations of people who are more affluent. But at the same time, you're seeing the working class populations and rural populations oppose those types of things. So again, you know, Texas is, is a state that that reflects a lot of what's going on in the country, and some of it is, is, is positive in terms of incarceration. Uh, but the overall arc and the trend it still is going to be tough to reverse. But Texas is certainly starting to wobble a little bit in some of these things. Uh, but 150 years of history is hard to overcome. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Phil, I believe you were next on the docket here if you want to jump in with your question. Sure. Thank you, Mike, for this so far. It's been awesome. Um, I've been working with children and families um, for about 20 years, particularly in lower income areas. And I'm really interested in uh, the rise in the breakdown of families and the possible correlations of that with incarceration rates. And I'm just really interested in any comments that you have or any insight that you have between the connection with family breakdown and, and incarceration. Yeah. So, there's a fantastic book uh, by a man named Donald Brayman called Doing Time on the Outside. And he essentially did an ethnography of families in the D.C. area and the way that incarceration affected those families. And he literally went and met with these families, hung out with them, did the ethnographical research, provides even charts about what happens when someone is removed from the family and incarcerated, um, and then broke down how essentially – the consequences that this had for the children, um, for daughters, young daughters whose fathers were incarcerated, for sons whose dads were incarcerated, for sisters, uh, for many urban families, the burden for many of these things falls on grandmothers who don't have the physical, that don't have the fiscal resources to respond to it. And this book does a really good job of highlighting how incarceration, um, when you send someone to prison, you know, people often talk about the consequences of the crime, and those consequences are real and can't be ignored. You know, uh, I got a three, a seven-year-old up there and a wife I love to death, and someone hurting them seriously, uh, it'd be impossible not to want that person to pay a heavy toll for what they've done. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's also part of the reality that when you send someone, particularly lower-level offenders, to prison for such a long period of time, the, the broader repercussions that has for the family in particular, but also for the local community, are, are really significant. Um, in some urban areas, there are so few young, marriageable men that women, are outnumber, women outnumber men four to one 
because uh, so many of the men are in prison. Um, and those sorts of dynamics then make it hard for people who live in certain communities to even find partners um, because the rates of incarceration in certain neighborhoods are just astronomical compared to other white neighborhoods and rural neighborhoods where those rates of incarceration are very low, even though we can show statistically that much of the same type of drug dealing is still going on in those suburban homes and those nice suburban cars. Um, but it's just a lot harder to catch than it is on the open air drug markets in urban areas. Great, thank you, appreciate that. Um, Heather, I believe uh, your question was next. You wanna jump in? When somebody is released um, from prison, what are their options for legal employment um, besides creating a business for themselves? And specifically, can you talk about uh, whatever the latest is on the question um, on applications? Are you a felon? This is a, a great question. Um, it's very difficult to answer in some ways because these policies, as I mentioned in the, the beginning, so many of these policies are so different across the country. Many of them are shaped by local ordinances and local laws at the city level. Uh, others are, are state laws and regulations about what employers can and cannot ask. And so again, because of our federal structure in this country, it's very difficult to say what that is in any given place. People who study it have done a good job though of, of showing how just just how uh, different this is. One good study that was done by Diva Pager to give you a, a, a bit of a sense as to how important this question is that you ask, um, Diva Pager did a study where she sent out applications in New York City uh, for jobs that had been posted publicly. I don't I know, like on one of, I don't know if it's like Monster or something like that. And in those applications, she had four, I think four different categories of people. She had a white person who had never been arrested and a white person who had, a black person who had never been arrested and a black person who had. And their resumes then were identical, but their names were uh, stereotypically racialized names for each group. So, you know, John Smith was clearly a white guy and, uh, you know, Jamal was made by where he went to school, even though the institutions were the same. So the education level was the same experience was the same all these things were the same so she sent these out to all these employers and then saw who got a call in and who got a call back white people with a record were more likely to get a call with the same level of qualifications than a black person who did not have one right but at the same time a black man with a record had almost no chance of getting called across these categories and so these are issues that people know matter and, um, you know, the ban the box movement of, of also just don't say that you did it. You know, who knows if they can find it. The problem with that is technology makes it so easy with a couple of clicks of the mouse now to find out if someone's ever been arrested. I mean, you can look at people's mugshots. Um, there are companies that take people's mugshots, store them permanently, and then you have to pay $500 to get your mugshot taken down off the Internet, even if you were never convicted of a crime. Um, so these are the sorts of things that um, aren't easily resolved. They vary widely across the country, um, but more and more local jurisdictions are more conscious of this. So especially in the Northeast and in California, there's a, a, a pretty powerful effort right now to provide people with opportunities. Um, especially, you know, we did have a tight labor market, I don't know, like 10 weeks ago. Uh, now we don't. Um, so, you know, as a criminologist, I'm really concerned about what is this going to mean? It, things looked better. The Wall Street Journal ran a great article a couple months ago about uh, inmates who were getting a chance to work because the market was so tight and that they were willing to work and show up and do all of these things. Uh, now I wonder, you know, with what's happened here in the last six weeks, you know, what, how is this going to affect their ability? Because they're, you know, people with a record are usually the first to get fired because um, they're at the bottom of the employment totem pole. So it's not even just about getting a job. It's about keeping it once you get one. And they're often at the bottom of the totem pole and some of the first to go. Um, so we'll see how that works out. You know, not a cheery time, um, but people are more conscious of it than they've ever been. Are there any particular industries that tend to be more friendly towards people that do have a record? Yeah, the food service industry. So restaurants have generally been more with cooks, dishwashers, uh, because a lot of those people can parlay those skills from uh, work in prisons. 
um, telecommunications, like phone answering phones. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, they can do the, that type of work. Um, but it's not in growth industries, unfortunately. In a lot of the industries that it is, it's a very exploitive type of work with very few benefits, very low wages, and a, and a lot of crappy work that no one wants to just keep doing. I would say that those would be the best, but it's not easy to say uh, of, of any that are really uh, shining bright in that regard. Um, it's usually your local restaurant that gives gives guys gives gives a woman a chance who's been incarcerated uh, to to work there. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on mass incarceration with Dr. Michael Campbell. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and we look forward to completing this next week. Thank you again. Cheers.